Well, sometimes we've seen something so often that we don't really see it at all. How many traffic lights did you pass on your way to church this morning? Any idea? Right? What key is next to your car key on your key ring? You touch it every day, but you probably couldn't tell me. If you're here with your spouse, what color shoes are they wearing without looking? Sometimes we see something so often that we don't really see it at all. Familiarity, it would seem, can be our worst enemy. So this week we're starting a new sermon series called Playlist, Seven Weeks in Psalms. Psalms is like a playlist. It's a group of ideas and songs, but they're not just songs for our entertainment. They're songs for our formation because God is the subject of all of these psalms. Each week we're going to take a look at a different psalm. This week we're looking at Psalm 23. And uh, so I got to just acknowledge up front, it was really unfair because last week Pastor Dave preached an incredible sermon on a very difficult text. I mean, we've got like hell, judgment, weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then here I am in like Psalm 23, like we're just a bunch of sheep frolicking through God's green meadow. So thank you, Dave, uh, for taking one for the team. Um, but here's the idea. Here's why we ended up in Psalms. So Matthew 18, if you remember, it's five weeks of Jesus telling these great parables and he's raising the bar. He draws a line in the sand. He says, this is what it means to be my disciple. And you get through that and you go, oh my goodness, like what kind of a God is this? Like he wants me to like take an inventory of my life and like understand all, what kind of a God is this? And, and so what do I do? How would I get to know him? That's why we're in Psalms. Because Psalms is just this open disclosure about somebody who sees God rightly and so he can worship God freely. And so that's where we're driving the bus the next seven weeks. I wanted you to see that. But there's a danger that we want to acknowledge right up front. There's a real tension behind the familiarity. I don't know that familiarity necessarily breeds contempt, but it definitely can breed cynicism. Here's what I mean. This yeah, yeah, yeah mentality that says, yeah, I've heard this before, Psalm 23, I get it. Like, it's embroidered on an afghan in my grandma's living room. Like, I memorized this when I was 12, I get it. Psalm 23, yeah, yeah, on to something new and exciting, come on. I think the deep things are sometimes the familiar things. Because if we're not careful, that cynicism can sometimes blossom into distance, disbelief, and even anger. Because there are days when God does not feel like a shepherd. There are times when the valley of the shadow does not feel like just a valley. And there are times when your cup does not runneth over. Sometimes it's barely got anything in it. Psalm 23 is meant as a comfort, but it's hardly a quaint comfort. This is a rich, theological, hard-fought declaration of God's character that comes from mining some really, really deep places in the human heart. This psalm paints three complementary pictures of God. Each one of these pictures carries with it its own metaphor. And as we look at these pictures today, Psalm 23 teaches us that God's best plan for you is his presence with you. God's best plan for you is his presence with you. So let's start off in verse 1. Here's the first declaration. My God is my trustworthy shepherd. He's my trustworthy shepherd. This psalm starts out with a declaration. Take a look in verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
Now, that first line, it, it always threw me for a loop when I was a kid. Because it's like, okay, if God is my shepherd, and that's a good thing, why wouldn't I want that? Right? Well, here's what David's saying. He's saying, because God is my shepherd, because he knows me, I don't know what it means to really want anything else. I am complete. I lack nothing in that. And those two thoughts are connected. Because this is true, this is true. Because God is my shepherd, I lack nothing. But there's something else interesting going on here that we need to see. He's not just a shepherd. He's not just someone's shepherd. He's not our shepherd. He's my shepherd. Now, usually in the Psalms, when we see the writer invoke this image of shepherd to describe God, it's a communal thing. Psalm 80, verse 1 says, O shepherd of Israel, hear us. Psalm 28, verse 9, save your people, be their shepherd. Right? Psalm 110, verse 3 says, we are the sheep of his, of his pasture, his people. Psalm 23 is the only time in the entire book of Psalms where the image of God as shepherd is personalized. That's very, very interesting to me. It's true throughout this psalm. There are 17 first-person pronouns for you grammar nerds out there, guilty. 17 of them, I and me. 17 pronouns in the first person throughout six verses. Here's why that's important. No one goes to heaven in a group. There's this communal sense of belonging to the people of God, belonging to a church, being connected to a body. But all of that is built on this personal, intimate knowledge of God. So we're nine words in, and I've already got to narrow the lens for you. Is this true of you? Can you say, the Lord is my shepherd? Because the rest of this psalm is just quaint sentimentality if this is not true of you. Is he your shepherd? Not like our collective shepherd. He is that. But is he your shepherd? Are you living your life under his authority, his leadership, his rule? Or are you getting lost in the crowd? Caught in the casual momentum of church? How do you know if God's your shepherd? A couple quick things. Do you think of God in real experience or distant ideas? Do you talk to God in personal terms like my sin, your grace, my debt, your righteousness? Or do you talk to him in like abstract principles? Do you enjoy God? Do you spend time with him? Do you hear from him? Do you listen to him? Or do you just coast on inertia and habit? The Lord is my shepherd. Can you say that? David begins this psalm with this personal experience of God's character. He's saying, God, like the creator of the universe, that God, that God knows me and loves me and watches me and cares for me. And he can see everything that I need. And so therefore, I don't lack anything. There's nothing else I could want. It's just him because he's my shepherd. And I know that. So is that true of you? Then David goes a bit deeper. Right? Because he's anticipating us, asking, okay, all right, if God's your shepherd, okay, how is he your shepherd? Like, what has he done for you? Because to say that you lack nothing, that's an incredibly bold statement. Like, you lack nothing? Really? How? What does he do? And then he gives four, four ideas, four images, four things that allow him to make that declaration. Take a look in verse 2. He makes me lie down, also translated as he settles me down. 
He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. That is, he sets things that are really wrong in me right again. And then he leads me in paths of righteousness, or better translated, like safe passageways, all for his name's sake. Now, here's the deal. When I read that, all of us in this room have a great picture of what that means, right? We see these, like, these rivers, like, flowing through this wonderful little pastoral scene, and we've got, like, green hills, and then we, like, drop a shepherd in there and surround them with some fluffy little sheep, and it's like, this looks really good. It looks a little bit like this, at least in our head. And it's like, yeah, that's exactly like what I imagine, you know, my walk with Jesus to be like. I would like it to be like that. There's one problem. That's not Israel. That's Ireland. (laughs) And I'd love to be there too. And I would love it if my walk with God looked like that. But it doesn't. Most of the time, right, it's a little bit different. Let's remember, David was a shepherd before he was king. David and Goliath. This is the same David we're talking about. And he knew that there was a region in Israel called the Negev The Negev is where these sheep and goats would flock and graze, and they would actually thrive in the Negev. But the Negev doesn't look like this. The Negev actually looks like this. That's where the sheep go. And if you're like me, you're looking at that and you're going, wait a minute, time out. Like, green pastures, still waters? Like, where? Is he just making this up? Here's the point. How much do you need to trust your shepherd if he is leading you to grass in the desert? In the Negev, green pastures don't look like endless rolling meadows. They're little patches of grass, probably a mouthful at a time, just enough nourishment to keep the sheep trusting their shepherd. This list of four images, this isn't a commentary on how pleasant it is to be a sheep careening through God's pastures and prancing around. This is a commentary on how skillful and how trustworthy the shepherd has to be. He's got to know where those little tufts of grass are found because he can't run his sheep too far and overwork them. He's got to know how to separate the plants that are good to eat from the plants that are poisonous. He's got to be on the lookout for foxes and jaguars and wolves. He's also got to know about the weather and like when it's going to rain and when there's a flash flood coming through the desert. He's got to know all of that. The biggest asset the shepherd has is his trustworthiness. Because if sheep don't trust the shepherd, they'll never lie down. They'll never eat anything. They'll never drink anything. They won't get what they need. They'll scatter and they'll run. They'll panic. They'll get lost. And eventually, whether by predators or hunger or starvation, they will die. It all hinges on the trustworthiness of the shepherd. When we lived in Colorado uh, for six years while we were going to seminary, uh, for a while we lived in this apartment complex. And it was really great. This apartment complex had a big giant pool in the middle of it, which was awesome for us. Our boys were really small at the time. And I think Joseph was like three or so when we went through this. And so like, you know, because we're first-time parents, we're like, all right, let's pool. This is how we do it. And so like we went to Target and we got him some Lightning McQueen swimming trunks. Right, we got him some of those big old and orange inflatable water wings. We got goggles, like, which is really weird when you get like a kid goggles. Like that just makes us feel better as parents, really, because like we are outfitting our child for deep sea travel. No, he's going to the pool in the apartment complex. But I remember we were doing this and uh, taking a walk down there, and I remember like the his flip flops, like whack 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 
whack, whack down the pavement, and we get down there to the pool, and like we open the creaky gate, creak, right? And so I get in there, I get in like the three-foot end, and then I'm like, all right, buddy. And so Joseph's like right here, and he's on the, the, not the concrete part, but like the front part with like the tile. His toes are like curling over the tile. And I'm like, come on, buddy, come on, you can do it, right? And he's standing there, and he's like going back and forth. There's like fear and like joy and like apprehension and like super excited, but like what happens if dad drops me? And I'm like, come on, you can do it, like super important dad moment. Come on, Father's Day. And then out of nowhere, from this like deep place deep inside of him, he just like launches out. And then like lands, like big old kid splash, chlorine up his nose, giggling like a baby. That's me, not him. (laughs) Now why is that such a sweet image, especially on Father's Day? Because it's somebody choosing trust when trust seems impossible. Grass in the desert. Some of you, you're in living little patch to little patch right now. Just enough grass. This could mean materially, like paycheck to paycheck, you got just enough to get by. It could mean emotionally, like you got just enough to deal with like what's right in front of you. It could mean spiritually, like you're in a battle and you got just enough faith to believe that God's working. It could mean physically, like I've got just enough to keep my eyes open. I just need a stinking nap, right? Whatever it is, God leads us to places of just enough to show us that he is just enough. And here's where the power of the gospel comes charging in. If this image of green pasture still waters mean anything, it serves to undermine my ability. It undermines my ability. Put plainly, I can't lead myself where I need to go. I need a shepherd. I need his ability over my life because I can't run this thing on my own. And guys, that goes so against the grain of what we've been taught in our culture that says, no, you got to like do market analysis, right? 401k, plan your work, work your plan, get secure, be upwardly mobile. And in the middle of this like pleasant pastoral little green scene, David goes, no. What my soul needs is communion with God, my shepherd. He makes me lie down because I would choose to keep running. He leads me beside still waters because I resist stillness. I want to be where the action is. Come on. He restores my soul. He fixes the broken stuff because I just kind of want to feel better about getting through a day. He leads me on righteous paths because left to my own choice, like, oh boy. Yikes. Destruction if I choose my own path. Rest, stillness, restoration, righteousness. Can anybody in this room... Give yourself those things. You cannot. I trust his ability because I distrust my own. So that's the first image. God is my trustworthy shepherd. Second image, God is my protector. He's my strong protector. Now, here's where the tone of the psalm shifts. Like, cue the spooky music and the dark clouds because verse 4 is here, right? Here comes verse 4. Having said how trustworthy the shepherd is, David now turns it and now he shows us the extent of how trustworthy the shepherd is. Because that's really the question. It's not are you good once, it's are you good all the time. Because what about the valley, God? Easy to trust you when I'm sitting there eating and happy. What about the valley? Are you good there too? Because if God's goodness has a limit, he's not much of a God, is he? 
So verse four, here's what David says. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for, why? You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In the search of green grass, the shepherd leads his flock down deep ravines, down steep hills, around narrow passes. But David's not afraid. Why? Don't miss this. For what? You are with me. God's best plan for you is his presence with you. And so David doesn't knuckle down. He doesn't psych himself up. He reminds himself or he gospels himself with this deep, hard-fought, frustratingly hard-to-believe truth that God's presence makes the difference. He can't do it on his own. The rod and the staff get to this. Every shepherd in David's time had one implement. They carried it like this. It was straight on one end. That's the rod part. And then it had a crook on the other end. That was the staff part. And it served two purposes, protection and direction. Anybody need those in your life? (laughs) When a shepherd uses his staff well, his sheep have comfort. But that word is actually much richer than like comfort, like a soft blanket, right? It's much deeper than that. It's more like comfort, like a broadsword. We hear that and we go, comfort. Oh, yeah, like rest, which would be a good idea because of the immediate context of rest. But it's much different. It's not comfort unto rest. It's comfort unto courage. Courage for what? Where does this come from? I don't understand. Courage for you are with me. That's where this courage comes from. Knowing that the shepherd is a strong protector, even in the valley. He is watching. He sees things that you don't see. He's fighting battles that you could never win. He's claiming victories that you never have to worry about. Did you notice something interesting in the psalm, though? Something shifted. And you may have missed it because it's super subtle. Verses 1 through 3, David's talking about God. He, he, he. Then verse 4, it shifts. He says, you. You are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. Why is that important? Here's what we should take from that. It's in the valley that God moves from an abstract concept, like a he that you may have memorized some interesting facts about, to a personal God with whom you have a relationship. Someone you can lean on, rely on. And trust because they are strong. And that happens in the valley because it's in the valley that we lean in. Have you ever been there? Those really dangerous places where you get completely disoriented. Head spinning around. You don't know what to do. You are lost. You are dizzy. You can't find your way out. You don't know how you got in there. You don't know which way you're facing. And you're going, God, how did I get in this mess? What is going on? I've been there. A um, couple big times in my life, and just to be really vulnerable for a second, the thing that I can't stand the most about the valley is I don't have any control. I, don't, I didn't get myself here, and I don't know how to get myself out of here. But here's what I love about the valley is I get a new window into my shepherd's care and loving leadership of me. <laughs> he knows what I need. He knows where he's going to take me because he is wise and he is strong. And so maybe you're here this morning, and maybe you're in a valley, in a room this size, and with a crowd like this, that's a good bet. Some of you are in a valley. Some of you just came out of a valley, and you're like, awesome, I'm feeling really good. Let's not talk about this anymore. 
Some of you are getting the sense maybe that you're about to head into one. And so what I want to do is I want to set up camp on the edge of the valley and just look in together. And as we peer in, I want to give you three rules for the valley. And I want to phrase them as questions because that's what the valley makes you do, right? The valley makes you question. And so here you go. Rule number one for the valley. In the middle of the valley, what can I learn is always a better question than why is this happening to me? What can I learn is always a better question than why is this happening to me? Here's why. Why is this happening to me tries to get at the purpose, like God's larger picture for what we're doing. But if your life is anything like mine, you only see the purpose after you've passed through the pain. But what can I learn means that you are choosing to trust your trustworthy shepherd's leadership and you're looking at the valley as a place of transformation rather than frustration. What can I learn is always a better question than what's ha- or why is this happening to me. Rule number two, what are you showing me is always a better question than what are you doing. What are you showing me is a better question than what are you doing. In the middle of the valley, it's easy to let your heart drift to an unhealthy place where like you kind of like you silently, like half angry, half frustrated, half sad, ask, do you really know what you're doing? which is really a statement in the form of a question that says, God, I don't believe you're sovereign right now. I think you got your hands off the wheel. I think you've lost control, God. So flip that on its head a little bit and say, God, here we are in this valley. Can you show me something about yourself that I would never have seen back in the pasture? Show me something of your sovereignty, of your beauty, of your mystery that I would have missed back there. But since I'm here, I'm right where you want me. Show me something else. Not what are you doing, but what can you show me? Third rule of the valley. How am I growing is a much better question than where am I going. How am I growing is a much better question then where am I going? Often in life, God leads us through the shadow, or the valley of the shadow for our formation, not just for our direction. He wants to form us. The valley is a place where we grow. How so? Because in the valley, you need your shepherd close. You learn to listen to his voice. You learn to feel his direction as he prods you and moves you where he wants you to go. He's near, and you need him to be near because you don't know where to go next. How am I growing is much better than where am I going. Do you hear the subtle melody of the gospel rising up in there again? In verses 1 through 3, we said that since God is my trustworthy shepherd, there's nothing I lack, right? That was the first chunk. Now let's extend that a bit. Since God is my strong protector, there's nothing I fear. There's nothing I lack and there's nothing I fear. I lack nothing, I fear nothing. There's no need he can't meet because he's a trustworthy shepherd. There's no enemy he can't conquer because he's a strong defender. Here's why this is important, blank filler types. (laughs) This undermines my authority. This undermines my authority because I can't protect myself from dangers I can't see. I can't push back on things that are lurking in the shadows that I didn't see coming. I don't know that they're there, (laughs) but I know someone who does. And he has profound authority to speak over and above any shadow that I ever find myself faced with. I trust his authority because I am woefully limited. 
That's the second image. God is my strong protector. Moving on, third image. God is my generous host. God is my generous host. Take a look in verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Now there's another like image that I was never really comfortable with as like an eight-year-old when I had to memorize this. I'm like, first off, what kind of feast is this? Like, just kind of like some thing to my enemies. Like, what's going on? And like, really, like a whole table in the presence of my enemies, I'd settle for like a corner booth in the presence of my family. Like, let's do that. And like this whole anoint my head with oil thing, like from a diffuser? Like, what is this? Like, is this thieves? Is this frankincense? Like, what are we doing here? I was, I'm like, what is going on? Here's what's happening. In David's day, when you would come to a party, every guest would be anointed with oil. And that oil was usually a mixture of olive oil and special spices or perfumes. It was kind of like their way of saying, hey, welcome to my house. I'm glad you're here. I want to show you my favor. I want to let you know that you are welcome here. Here's what I want you to see in this. David is returning back to the images that he started with. God's best provision for his child. And he wants you to know you are welcome at his table. That is a beautiful thing. You got all five senses going on here, right? You've got the sight of this bouquet of like table full of food. You got the taste of a lavish meal. You get the feel and the smell of oil coming down your head, and you've got the sound of like a cup overflowing. Like this is God as a very generous host assaulting any inkling of doubt in our minds that we are loved and welcome at his table. And the point isn't the food. The point isn't the oil. The point isn't any of that stuff. Keep reading verse 6. He says this, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What's he doing here? He gives, he personifies goodness and mercy, and he gives them feet. And he says, these things are going to follow me all the days of my life because he's going somewhere. Where is he going? Guys, this is my favorite part of the psalm, God is the goal himself, unity and communion with God. You and I were created for one purpose, one purpose only, eternal, unbroken, unclouded communion with our creator. This life that we've been given, however many years it is, everybody in this room, it points to one end, eternity with God. And so that means that the green pastures he leads you through, the valleys that he helps you navigate through, the feast he prepares for you, that all leads to one gospel goal, that we might enjoy him forever. That is a huge deal. Do you realize that every pleasure that you enjoy, legitimately, every legitimate pleasure that you enjoy, every compliment that you get from a friend, Every time you sit down to a good meal, every time you laugh at a good joke, every time like you get that shiver when your spouse gives you that look, right? Every time you just sit back and go, God, you are so good. How are you this good to me? All of those pleasures have been given to you with one gospel hope in mind, that you would follow the thread back to a generous, gracious God who wants nothing more than for you to enjoy him for his goodness. So here's the weird question for you. Will you allow God to host you? Now, everybody in here is going, yeah, of course. That's a stupid question. Why wouldn't I allow God to host me? If he wants to do that, sure. Here's what I mean, though. There are few things harder in life 
than learning how to receive. There are few things harder in life than learning how to receive, but that's what grace is. See, we want to prepare our own table. We want to conquer our own enemies so we can anoint our own heads and fill up our own cups. But grace says no. You can't give yourself what you truly need. God is a generous host. You can't celebrate the generosity of God while you try to do everything on your own. And so if the first section of this psalm serves to undermine my ability, then verse 4 undermines my authority. These last two verses undermine my autonomy. My autonomy. This idea that I can do everything on my own. That I've got this. I'm independent. I'm king of my castle. I'm good. And these say, no. You can't give yourself what you truly need. I can't lead myself where I need to go. I can't protect myself from what I don't see. And now I can't give myself what I truly need. These are the confessions of someone who worships God freely because they see him rightly. Our God is a generous host. But let's be clear. Each of us shares something in common. We think that we are able and we are not. We think that we have authority. We do not. We think that we are autonomous. We are not. We are rebels. We have sinned against our Father by treasuring our ability, our authority, and our autonomy. We have chosen sin time and time again. We've wounded our relationship with this kind of a God. And to make matters worse, there's nothing we can do about it. We need a shepherd, we need a protector, and we need a host. Now, here's what I haven't told you yet. In the Old Testament, the writers, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, used this image of shepherd to talk about kings, like literal kings. They also used it to talk about God himself, like we just read. But more importantly than that, they used this image of shepherd to talk about this one-day king who would one day come. He was like a blurry, distant figure on the horizon of history. He was called Messiah. And as he drew nearer, things became clearer about this king. That he would make a sacrifice for God's people and it would be a perfect sacrifice. And part of what that sacrifice would do would open up the door to worship because it would restore a relationship between God's people and himself. And when this king would come, he would restore everything. He would set everything right that was broken again and it would be forever. Now, looking back from where we are in this span of history and time, from this side of the cross... Can there be any doubt in your mind that this is Jesus? The full expression of God as a trustworthy shepherd, a strong protector, and a generous host. He undermines my ability because he leads me where I can't go. He gives me rest, restoration, and renewal. He undermines my authority because he protects me from things that I can't see and battles I could never win. He undermines my autonomy by giving me what I truly need and I could never get on my own. My salvation and right relationship with my God. He promises me victory by giving me blessing, peace, provision, and patience. He secures my future by saying I can have eternity with him. And he does it all for his glory and my joy. Guys, this is the gospel. 
We get to enjoy up close what David could only see at a distance. And so my only question this morning, as we kick off this series, and as we turn our hearts toward this mysterious, generous, amazing God, is do you know him? Not do you know about him, like he's somebody's shepherd. He's a shepherd. He's our shepherd. He's like a picture on a wall. No. Is he yours? Do you know him or do you know about him? You heard me say this a couple of weeks ago, and I really believe it. I believe the local church is the hope of the world. God did amazing things through 12 very dysfunctional men on the other side of the world, and here's a room full of us. What would it be like if everybody who filled churches in the United States and in Ohio and in Stark County and in North Canton and right here, if everybody who knew something about Jesus lived like they know him and he's working in their life, what kind of a movement would that start? Think about that. Do you know about him or do you know him? Is he forming you? Is he your shepherd? Let's pray together. Father, again, we come and we say that you are good. You are good because you saw us as lost sheep, wandering around, trying to figure out our own way of doing things, taking pride in whatever little tuft of grass we could find. And then you are good to call us to yourself and say, no, let me lead you. Let me be with you. God, I will never understand why you love us as sheep. It is absolutely amazing. God, I'll never understand why you sent your son to come to give his life for people like us. So as we turn our hearts to think about your work on the cross, God, if there's anybody in here that needs to do business with you, if there's anybody in here who says, no, he's not been my shepherd, and I want him to be, God, would today be the day that they would surrender their life to you, give up, and accept your authority over their lives. Father, we love you. Bless us as we sing in Christ's name. Amen.